with my friend Ward, I'd like to uh, get a sense of the context of my reading when I have one. Uh, when Nicholas handed me this one, I got that very pleasant feeling of having already done your homework when it got assigned. I think this is everything uh, my yogi has ever tried to teach me, all in this uh, few paragraphs here. Know that the self is the rider and the body the chariot, that the intellect is the charioteer and the mind the reins. The senses say the wise are the horses. The roads they travel are the mazes of desires. The wise call the self the enjoyer when he is united with the body, the senses, and the mind. When a man lacks discrimination and his mind is uncontrolled, his senses are unmanageable like the restive horses of a charioteer. But when a man has discrimination and his mind is controlled, his senses, like the well-broken horses of a charioteer, lightly obey the rein. The senses of the wise man obey his mind. His mind obeys his intellect. His intellect obeys his ego and his ego obeys the self. Well, thank you, Willie. Um, that was from the Hindu scripture, the Upanishads. Know that the self is the rider, the self is the rider, and the body the chariot. Well, this is the last of our series that we're doing here on the nature of being. And over the past few weeks, looking at the whole idea of the nature of being, we've looked at the fact that being is really, how we be is really a function of our worldview. And that those worldviews that each of us have can vary enormously. They can be very different. And that what we really aim for, at least what we aim for here, is a soul worldview, one that is, you know, almost a quantum shift of the goalposts, being aware of ourselves as a part of something bigger. Uh, the result of that is an expanded vision, you know, being less attached to our beliefs, a greater awareness of the mind. Where our lives are given as a part of the formation of a greater consciousness, the idea of us being living sacrifices. And we've talked about this over the past few weeks. The trouble with this is that often we try so hard to be spiritual that we forget our humanity. And the theme today, as you saw on the thing, is body and soul. So we, we try so hard to be spiritual when we think about these concepts that we forget our humanity. The idea that Often we think of ourselves as human beings really desperately trying to be spiritual. And we desperately try and meditate our way to be spiritual. When in fact the truth of it is that we have to realize that we are already spiritual beings. 
and that our job in life is really to be human. You know, our task in life is to be as human as possible. And being human, actually, is a lot more difficult than being spiritual. You can ask anyone who's ever lived in a monastery. You know, the human side is the difficult side. And today I want to talk about that interaction between the divine and the human. This is an icon of of Christ with the heavenly bodies. And as I've always said before, Jesus always puts his uh, fingers up like that. And what he's actually saying when he puts his fingers up like that is that we have two natures, one divine and one spiritual. And this is based on those icons by Andre Rublev. And he did lots of them. And this particular one is Christ among the heavenly bodies. It was done for me by someone who was working in a, in a monastery in England. And um, I was telling uh, David Florey just now, that when they paint these things, the idea is it's a prayer. And the guy who was starting to learn this uh, couldn't get it right when he was starting to do icon painting. He rang up his icon master and said, what am I doing wrong? And the bloke said, well, are you meditating while you're painting? He said, no. He said, well, that's what you have to do. And so they're really designed as windows into the eternal. And this particular one, which I think is interesting, first of all, you've got Jesus holding up his two fingers there, which is the human and the divine, those two elements. And then for me, and this is my interpretation, you've got the sort of conscious side. Everything that's red is conscious. You know, the body's conscious. You've got the four Gospels here. Uh, A conscious physicality. And then you've got the the dark side of it, these are the heavenly bodies around here. And that, for me, is the unconscious. That's what we're not aware of. And then the gold here represents the divine. And so you've got the gold here of his, the consciousness around there and the gold that underpins everything else. So, in a sense, this icon has that representation of both the divine and the human sort of coming together. So you can have a look at that afterwards uh, if you want to... Uh, I'll just sort of leave it there. Um, and, and, it's, and the icons really represent the different aspects of it. And I think, you know, like Jesus in the heavenly bodies here, like is portrayed in the icon, we are both human and divine. The acknowledgement of the divine in us, I think, is what makes us truly human. The acknowledgement of the divine within us is what makes us truly human. Without that acknowledgement, we're just animals running around just trying to get what we want. But with the divine in us, it changes our perception. It actually takes us into that soul consciousness. There's just as much a danger, though, if we try to live only for the divine. I think it's interesting, you know, we, again, you know, there's the spiritual and the divine. We always try to go towards the spiritual. And if you just focus too much on the spiritual, there's just so much of a problem. The whole idea of Gnosticism, which was big heresy uh, in the sort of early church, uh, and the reason they made that heresy was really because it emphasized the divine over the human. It emphasized that divine aspect. It really said that the body is inferior to the spiritual. And, you know, we still have that today. If you ever want to see how to bring somebody down in public life, it's always around the body. It's always around something to do with the body. It's around the shame around the body. 
body misbehavior is always placed, you know, strongly as a way of bringing people down and shaming them. The idea of body shaming is quite present at the moment in, in social media. And you've got that idea, you know, when in Adam and Eve, when, uh, you know, when they were ashamed of their bodies and they made fig leaves to hide their bodies and they became ashamed. And we have that right the way through our culture, the shame that's around our bodies. Whereas in Christianity, it, it really says, and what Jesus really says is they are equal. The two, the body and the soul are of equal. Now, last week was Pentecost. So we just, this is the season of Pentecost. And it's interesting looking at Pentecost, when you're looking at the whole idea of the body and the mind, and, and the spirit rather, is to look at the nature of the temple. Um, the Jewish people built two temples. And when the temple was first built by Solomon, all those years, you know, that, that, that first temple in the Old Testament, they knew that God was there. The sign that God was there was that he descended on the temple, if you read it, in fire. Fire came down and there was a great you know, whoosh of fire in the temple. And you know, they had the burnt offerings and the sacrifices and the glory of God filled the temple. That temple was then destroyed. And the second temple that was built was built by Herod sometime before Jesus was born. And it's interesting that in the scripture, no fire descends on that temple. So there is that sense that there is no sort of godness in that temple. And what you find in the, in the New Testament is that that temple is not based around the whole divine aspect. It's all about law. It's all about behaving well, the Pharisees. You know, it's about making sure you do the right thing. You know, do the, don't work on the Sabbath, all that stuff. It's all about law. But then the interesting thing that on the day of Pentecost, the fire comes down and it doesn't descend on the temple. It descends on people. The day of Pentecost came, they were together, and suddenly a sound like a, the blowing of a violent wind uh, came from heaven and filled the whole house they were sitting, and they saw what seemed as tongues of fire that separated and came to rest, rest on each of them. And that symbolism in the New Testament really showed that the temple was not now in any one place but within each human being. It was a sign that the temple was now within us. Our bodies became the new temple of the divine. And that's really the shift that Jesus brings, the awareness that we all carry the Christ within us, like Jesus, that we do have those two natures. You know, it says in Corinthians, do you not know that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you've received from God, and you're not on your own. Each one of us now is a carrier of Christ and a new life that comes through us, a new life that we bear and, you know, that we shouldn't get in the way of. Yeah, a new life of Christ, whatever you like to call it, or the Buddha nature or the Tao or the Atman, whatever you want to call it. And there's that realization at the, at the moment of that Christ arriving and at the moment of the Buddha arriving, all those moments is the arrival of the divine within humanity. And in that reading from the Upanishads, you can see the very same idea existing in Hindu scriptures. Know that the self is the rider and the body is the chariot. That's such a powerful image. The self is the rider and the body is the chariot. The intellect is the charioteer and the mind the reins. So, 
there is the expression of our being, you know, the need for, within our being, a need for the right relationship between the body and the soul. We're looking at beingness here. Now, in, in doing that, once you've identified that there is a spiritual side, you've got to get a right beingness between the body and the soul. And it can go wrong in so many ways. Knowing that we are part human and part divine can have the human part or the ego mistake itself for the divine. It's easy for the human part, the ego, to mistake itself for the divine. And in this case, people just plain think they're right all the time. They think that God is speaking directly to them. They claim insight and a relationship with the divine that's special. And the result that you have from that is cults, the formation of a superego, and you know, people following people who claim that they are in that place. And really, it's just an ordinary ego supercharged with ideas that it is God. And that's a huge danger. You know, something that all of us in the religious game are susceptible to. You know, any, anybody up here doing this sort of stuff is susceptible to thinking that they're right. So having seen the advantage of living in the idea of soul consciousness, being aware of ourselves as part of something bigger, we have to somehow allow a right relationship to occur between those two natures, human and divine. A relationship that doesn't overemphasize the divine, leading to that idea of a superego, or on the other hand, doesn't underemphasize the human side, you know, which leads, the underemphasis of the human side leads to the idea that God's out there. You know, what I call, you know, a slug mentality, you know, which is typical in some parts of Christianity, where, which says that I'm a mere slug. I'm just crawling along full of ghastliness in this world, guilty of everything, and I can only be saved by the intervention of a divine being who will, I will slavishly obey and be good for. You know, I will do that because Jesus or whoever that divine being is good and therefore I'll obey everything he says. Something that many of the parts of the church have used to keep people under control. You know, they will tell you how you should behave because, you know, they're talking directly from God. So you can see how this thing gets totally muddled up with super egos and, you know, codependencies spiritually. The true state is one of freedom where our being is within our own hands. Not dependent on the church or a teacher or some remote God, but mediated through our own consciousness to right action. That's the true role. And I think even Jesus understood that. You know, that whole thing that Paul said in Philippians, which is really about this relationship, as Paul says, do not out of selfish ambition or vain conceit uh, consider, value your, yourself above yourselves, not looking at your own interests, but each of you looking to the interests of others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset of Christ, who being the very nature of God, have the same mindset of Christ, who being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, or to be used to his own advantage, but rather made himself nothing, 
by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So really, this is describing how to have that relationship between the body and the soul. Not to equate yourself with the soul, but know that it is within you. So really, the key to the breaking this relationship is humility. Humility is the key to breaking the relationship between the human side and the divine. You know, we recognize that divine spark that's within us, but realize that this is not a part of our ego. And, you know, Jesus even said, I, I only do, I do only what I see the Father doing. So it's not from his mind, it's a recognition of what is going on. And we have to allow ourselves to be led into service. T.S. Eliot says in the four quartets, the only wisdom we can hope to acquire Interesting what's going to come next. The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. And he goes on to say, I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope. I said to my soul, be still and wait without hope. For hope would be hope for the wrong thing. Wait without love, for love would be love of the wrong thing. There is yet faith, but the faith and the love and the hope are all in the waiting. It's all in the waiting. Wait without thought, for you are not ready for thought. So in the darkness shall be the light and the stillness in the dancing. So the darkness shall be the light, and in the stillness will be the dancing. And that gives us a glimpse of that conscious state of being, the realization of the two natures, the humility to allow ourselves to be led, to rest in that place where the darkness shall be light and the stillness the dancing. The darkness is really the humility of not knowing. The darkness is the humility of not knowing. And the stillness is the actively passive state of waiting. The actively passive state of waiting. The darkness shall be the light and the stillness the dancing. You know, it's almost that Taoist image of the yin and the yang with the darkness in the light and the light in the darkness. That, that has that flavor of those two. And we come back to the ordered life that we talked about the other day, when we arrive at that point, the result of arriving in that stillness is the ordered life. Not an order imposed by our minds, but one that we can experience as being a part of. We experience ourselves, as I said the other day, as being a part of that order. T.S. Eliot again, at the still point of the turning world, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards. At the still point, there the dance is, but neither arrest nor movement. And you sort of get a sense of it, that, that, that difficult relationship between the body and the soul. Our being, our being is therefore a function of balancing on that pinhead, consciously not knowing, waiting. As it says in the Tao Te Ching, that, that wonderful bit, do you have the patience to wait till your mud 
settles and the water is clear? Do you have the patience to wait till your mud settles and the water is clear? Can you remain unmoving till the right action arises by itself? That's the state that we're really reaching towards with this body and soul. And even as you move forward, you still do so not knowing, still with a beginner's mind welcoming each moment as it comes, not making a judgment as to whether it's good or bad, but receiving it with grateful humility, receiving that moment. Now, all of that may seem a bit of an ask when you have to deal with your children acting up or when you're trying to win an election. And congratulations, Ward. I think a round of applause for Ward. (laughs) I mean, you know, when you're trying to do all that stuff, you know, to think, oh, am I right actioning now? You know, I mean, you know, it is difficult when you're living your life, you know, doing that. But actually, making it such an effort and so complicated is really, again, to give import to the mind to, to, that we can really know what the right thing to do is. The truth is that if you have a fundamental attitude of humility and a desire to serve, then everything else falls into place. You know, as Martin Luther is supposed to have said, love God and sin boldly. Love God and sin boldly. And put yourself in the right place and the right worldview and then let yourself go. I always have this sort of clockwork mouse theory of being, which is that you wind yourself up in the morning in meditation, in your practice and in preparation And then once you've wound yourself up, you let yourself go into the world. Being aware that if you come up against a brick wall, you just turn yourself about and start all over again. You know, you learn from circumstances. You know, I always say in developing consciousness that, you know, I offer this with the willingness to be wrong. Who knows? We don't know. And, you know, when you find something goes right, you just reassess it and you turn yourself around and do it again. Your humility And your willingness to be wrong is that which saves you in each situation. Your humility and your willingness to be wrong saves you in each situation. It's only when we think we're right and want to impose on others that we become unstuck. So it's a delicate balance, the body and the soul. You can't sort of diss either of them. And you have to live in that balance between the two, allowing yourself to be led and placing yourself in that place which is uh, um, where you have the humility to admit that you're wrong. That's it, I've finished. Let's pray. Now we ask you just to guide us in our lives together, the way that we operate, that you may express yourself through us and enable us to be part of your developing understanding in the world. We do pray for our leaders that they will be able to be led, able to admit when they're wrong. We pray for all those suffering in difficult places, in prisons, in hospitals, in war zones, people who are deprived, not blessed like us. We do pray for ourselves in our valley. 
those on the mountains at the moment, pray for safety, pray for those working today. And we do offer you those who uh, we're especially thinking of at the moment, of Patricia Hill, Barbara Orcutt, Will Welsh, Balbrick Carlberg, Anne Hodges, Tracy Houston, Linda Schneider, Pat Smith, Lauren Ann Bauer, Jan Metz, Lainey Hers, Lee Borgia, who's uh, Mandy Scott's uh, grandmother who's been ill, Soleil, the family of, of Harry Norris, Bud's father who died at the weekend, and Susan Gomez, family of Pepper Gomez, pray for Sharon Wells. Lord, we just pray your healing power to all of those people. In Jesus' name, amen.